is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. And we're, we're continuing with our ongoing series, Women in Leadership. And when I went to set up the Facebook Live, it's completely different within two days from the previous format that I've been using for a couple of months. So I'm gonna to have to do some edits for the podcast. But that being said, we're gonna continue on. Uh, today we're going to be interviewing Nassim May from, she's a clinical program manager for Center for Community Counseling. But before we begin there, I need to acknowledge our sponsor for today's podcast. That is the Molina Law Group. It's springtime and love is in the air. People are planting flowers and beautifying their homes and beautifying their lives. And people are looking for love and hopefully you're not looking for love in all the wrong places. But online dating services are growing exponentially and people are falling in love with lots of other folks from overseas. If you do that, if you fall in love with someone from a foreign country and you want to bring them here to visit the United States, now we have COVID, so those are conditions that you have to take into consideration, but you will need a, a visa. You will need to have the ability to bring them here on a document that's called a fiance visa. Molina Law Group is a local immigration practice located here in Springfield, Oregon, and they can help you with that. They can help you from with bringing your fiance here from anywhere in the world. Their phone number is 541-653-8899. You can find Molina Law Group on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. They will be opening their Beaverton office this June 2021. And uh, give Molina Law Group a call if you have any immigration needs or in, any immigration services. So today we're going to move on now with the program. We have Nassim May. In the interest of full disclosure, I am on the board of directors for the Center for Community Counseling, and I've had the opportunity to interview Nassim last year at the beginning of the pandemic, and we began to host a series, Molina Leadership Solution, hosted a three-part series on mental health as the pandemic came upon us in full force. Nassim is a clinical man program manager again for CCC and she holds a master's of social work and a master's in business administration with an emphasis in nonprofit profit management. Both degrees are from New Mexico Highlands University in Las Vegas, New Mexico. I didn't know there was a Las Vegas, New Mexico until I read your bio. She has experience at the university level as well as case coordination, team building, marketing, and volunteer recruitment. She has additional experience providing psychotherapy, supervision, trainings, class lectures, and public presentations. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming today's guest in Women in Leadership, Nassim May. Nassim, how are you doing today? Good, thank you for having me. Now, I am just trying to get my questions over to this right screen, there you go. All right, first and foremost, um, we had a lot going on in our community, our global community, our families, our peer group, our sphere group, our friends and professional networks. Uh, how are you doing with all the demands for your area of expertise? Yeah, it's definitely growing. Um, we're getting calls and um, at the Center for Community Counseling, what we do is connect people with therapists. That's always been for individual and group services. I found now that we are kind of a broker for therapists. Um, 
at the um, management level as well. And so, um, you know, we've been working closely with KLCC, for example, and when they need a therapist who specializes in an area, because of our large network, we're able to really connect people with someone who is trauma-informed and is able to speak to that, or um, when the rotaries are looking for, you know, what services might be appropriate for those who have been victims of the fire, um, we're able to kind of think about our network of therapists who um, we'll get to, I'm sure, later, but, um, you know, just really analyzing their skills, what who's got what knowledge, and connecting connecting not only our clients, but um, other great organizations in the area with um, the mental health and psycho psychological knowledge that we that we hold. You know, this series is titled Women in Leadership. And one of the things that I had wanted to create in this series was the broad spectrum and the broad range in which women in our communities are leading and teaching and guiding and instructing and helping not just a community, but people as individuals grow, heal, discover, be delivered from pains, aims, financial burdens and structures. And so listening to you describe that, you know, I'm obviously I'm a board member on the Center for Community Counseling, but the, the way in which you describe being a broker for a therapist, I guess I never really thought about that in, the, in those terms until you just mentioned we're just gonna we're gonna have some questions but let's talk about that a little bit let's talk about how you your services i mean you're leading you're guiding you're directing tell me tell us a little bit more about that being a broker so to speak and how you're connected to all these other experts to provide hope and healing to to our community yeah, so, um, you know, the Center for Community Counseling is really a unique organization. It's a um, the only donor-based uh, mental health agency that we know of in um, at least the tri-state area, Idaho, Washington, and Oregon, but possibly even larger area than that. Um, and it puts us in a really unique place in, it's the first mental health organization that I've worked for that does not have therapists who are completely burnt out um, given the demands of the medical model. And so, um, you know, I feel very fortunate that I work with amazing therapists who really are dedicated to this area, who um, appreciate the service so much that they're willing to give some of their time for free um, to members of our community. And as such, um, often carry a lot more learning with them as well. Um, and so, you know, my job really is to understand who each one of our therapists is, what their uh, skills are, what their knowledge base is, and um, and try to match them appropriately with, with whoever may call um, for services, whatever those services may look like. And so, you know, I, this work couldn't be done without the amazing therapist who, um, many of them are affiliated with universities or private practices, um, just have a, a, an extensive amount of learning, especially in the area of trauma, um, of more depthful psychological approaches um, that really look to support mental health and mental well being rather than just fixing behaviors. And so, um, yeah, so it's really my job to understand that I think as a leader, um, that's probably the most important thing is understanding what resources you have 
and how to best utilize them for the not only for the agency but for the community at, at whole in this case tell us a little bit about you mentioned something therapist burnout mm. therapists get burned out <laughs> I know, strange, right? Um, you would think we'd have all the coping skills to deal with that. Um, yeah, therapists get burnt out, um, particularly in agencies. Uh, this research is well documented that um, holding the, the stress of others, holding the crisis of others um, with, with very little support themselves with really long days and um, what in my mind seems like unrealistic uh, documentation expectations leads people to, to not having the, the mental resources themselves after a while. And so you do get people who are unfortunately um, not serving in the way that they hoped when they got get into this field. And so um, again, the Center of Creative Community Counseling really is client driven and therapist volunteer driven. And so we, when we make policies, we really keep that in mind um, and really seek the input of our therapists so that we make sure first and foremost that our clients are getting the services that they should and that their needs are put, put first. And I think that keeps us from experiencing that same burnout. So let's talk a little bit about CCC again for those that are gonna hear this uh, for the first time. Mm-hmm. What is CCC and what do you mean? I mean, I know the answer, but I just want sure. to, those that are listening, uh, you mentioned CCC, services for free, client uh, therapists connected to universities, things of that nature, participating, willing to give back. Tie those together for us and give us a vision of CCC. Right. So the Center for Community Counseling started about 42 years ago. And uh, so we're a long-standing not-for-profit here in Eugene. And um, we really started with the vision of one therapist feeling that they wanted to give back to the community. And so, you know, starting to see clients um, for free or at, at that time and feeling like no one would come uh, or maybe some people would come. And within a matter of months that that therapist was full and so, um, you know, then it became an organization that, that moved this uh, center to where we are now, located on the St. Thomas campus. Um, and so we've gone from there to becoming a, a corporated not-for-profit. Um, we have a network of therapists now who volunteer an hour to 10 hours a week of their time. Some are student interns, some are um, licensed therapists, some are therapist working towards licensure, which um, is just a, di a different licensing process that the therapists go through um, under supervision. And so we've got this broad range of therapists with, with varying skills coming into um, varying uh, skills as far as what the, the learning that they bring into the center. Um, they bring that in, they volunteer their time. And then CCC then turns around and offers this service to the community, to anyone who's uninsured or underinsured in any way, not able to access therapy otherwise. And um, we ask for a small fee, usually five to $40 a session, which is considerably less than what people would be paying for either private practice, which runs in the hundred to $200 realm um, per session or, um, or what, 
they would be paying on their co-pays for therapy, uh, which is normally the 30 to $50 range. Um, and so we're able to sustain our services through these fees and our wonderful uh, grantors and private donors. So volunteer therapists, marginal fees, minimal fees mm -hmm. for help and support. There's actually organizations out there that are helping provide this type of service to the community. Even though I know the answer, I'm I want people to understand how important this work is. And yes, there are organizations, there are funders out there. Talk there about are funders, yes. Um, our, our executive director, I think, will be on at some point and she will run through the list. I want to don't want to start the wonderful long list of donors because I don't want to leave anyone out. But um, yes, we've got private donors who give twice a year, sometimes uh, during our asks. Um, we've got wonderful foundations here in, in Eugene and within Oregon um, that really see the value of the service and really see us as a safety net. Uh, in the organization. And so, you know, we've got people who, um, students who come here and are on their, their parents' insurance, but their parents' insurance doesn't, la doesn't work here in Oregon. And so, you know, we're a service for them. We're in service for um, undocumented individuals who don't have insurance, but are willing to pay for these services. We're a service for people who have insurance, but can't afford their co-pays. Um, a lot of people fall into this category. And then those who make too much for Medicaid, but still aren't able to access their insurance and so um, are uninsured. And so there's a large group of people who uh, unfortunately need our services. We're glad to be here for them. We wish we didn't have to be. Um, and then on the other side, we have therapists who have been in the field for a long time and maybe are semi-retired and want to give back to the community that supported them. Um, we have, like I said, interns coming in, we have um, other volunteers, and so uh, people who are really dedicated to this field and the, and the learning that goes on in this field. You know, I think that's really important. What we're talking about today regarding the Center for Community Counseling, you as a woman in leadership, you as a clinical program manager there, you mm -hmm. recruiting therapists for the, the various areas of need that people have. This is a growing demand. This is, an, for the lack of a better word, I'll use the word commodity because it provides service back um, that is legitimate. Mm -hmm. And I wish that we would have had a Center for Community Counseling when I was a child. I wish I would have known. My father died when I was seven and 71. My mother drowned when I was 10 and 74. In both cases, I was back in school the next day, seven years old, back in school, 10 years old, back in school. Every, all the, all, everyone asking questions, your classmates are asking questions. How'd your daddy die? What happened to your mom? How did she drown? They were both very prominent community supporters. So they were, they were, their deaths were in the paper. They were on the radio. They, there was a lot of things that my child mind could not understand mm -hmm. or comprehend. And as I grew older, all those pressures were still there. Those triggers were still there. And that's really why I dropped out of college at 18 was because I couldn't handle 
everything that was still inside of me. And I'm saying all that to say is there's a lot of kids today that was just like I was at that time that need to know, families need to know, community leaders need to know. We have the Center for Community Counseling that has options for people who are in desperate need to get help. Absolutely. And you bring up a great point. We uh, at the Center for Community Counseling, we don't um, serve children individually, although we do run groups for children and, and parents. Um, but like you said, these these traumas that happen to us as a child, whether or not we process them, um, impact us, impact our adulthood, right? So something that's still very um, real to you. And so, um, and, and something that, you know, affected your college career. And so that's who the Center for Community Counseling is here. We understand, you know, adults in our community, the majority of adults, if not everyone, is walking around with some sort of trauma and probably not as significant as losing both parents, but there is trauma and we just went through a global crisis or we are going through. And so we all have these and, and the Center for Community Counseling is really here to do that lasting work with you to support you in in realizing that you were a child and it was hard to understand and contextualize what was happening and to answer other people's questions and so you know how can we now through understanding that trauma through understanding what our childhood was like what our adulthood was like um how can we start to, to address those so that we have more awareness in ourselves and which generally translates into increased um, resiliency in our adulthood. It, it um, often if we work through our own grief, it, it decreases the anger that we see in our society right now, um, this fractioning of us versus them. You know, there's a lot of healing that happens by just one individual working through their grief, understanding their trauma, and therefore not needing to traumatize basically others. And so we find this work to be really important. For those that are listening, I want to, I, I'd like to share just a little bit more for the sake of this conversation and the value of the work that Nassim does with the Center for Community Counseling, the work that the therapists do, and how it helps so many, and I know there's so many needing support. I can remember Nassim, you know, when our mother drowned, it was in flash flooding, and it took several days for them to find her body. So it was mm -hmm. on the news every day. It was on the radio every day. It was in the newspaper. And I remember hyperventilating in my bed as a child. Where's my mother's body? Where's my mother's body? Where's my mother's body? wanting to waking up the next morning, turning on the television. Did they find my mother's body? You know, listening to the radio, waiting for some notification. And the, you know, the first thing you see is the headlines in the newspaper and her vehicle washed up on shore, but mm. there's no body. And I'm saying that because we as individuals, as human beings, as people, we don't always know how to process those moments in time. And they come up when you least expect it. They begin to manifest when you least expect it. They can be triggered by things unknown, unseen, and there are repercussions. And our communities need organizations like the Center for Community Counseling and therapists 
like you and others who are donating and giving back of their time or for, for minimal charges to make sure that there are people that get that kind of help and support. What would you yeah. like to say to about to I think it's important for you to let's have a conversation about that about it's okay for people to be in pain and, and that they need to know that it's okay to ask for help. Absolutely. Um, you know, you bring up a great point of these night sweats. And so, you know, for listeners, how many of us have experienced our children having nightmares? Um, how many of us continue to have nightmares? How many of us continue to wake up in panic or to have difficulty sleeping? Um, in times of stress, a lot of that can come back to us if we haven't um, found a way to process it yet. And so, you know, I, I, I hope that people will reach out because I think that's important. And, um, you know, being in, a, being in the midst of a, of a um, crisis, although a lot of the tension for many people has come down, um, it's still very alive for, for, for folks on both sides of the debate, um, whether you, you believe that, um, that COVID is a threat to you and your family, whether you believe that mask wearing is appropriate, whether you believe um, vaccinations should happen, or on the other end, um, if, if you fear for your life um, or the life of your loved ones, um, there can be a lot of trauma there. And that trauma can often, um, again, as I said, anxiety can often make us Feel like we need to choose sides and protect our our belief our values and so you know if we're finding ourselves having these really intense feelings against others against our neighbors our community our families we're not talking to you know someone we talked to a year ago because they're not on the same page as us um, as these these little events start to build unfortunately, it starts to isolate us. And so I hope that people will reach out. I hope that um, our community can come through this together, um, realizing that we all have grief, whatever that might be. And so, um, yeah, you know, like you're sharing your story, it's, there are a lot of uh, bodily symptoms that take place. And so if you're noticing a lack of appetite or maybe an increase in appetite. If you're lacking a pleasure in things that you used to find pleasurable, um, if you're avoiding certain situations, not because they're actually unsafe, um, but because they, they bring this in extreme level of fear or panic within you. Um, you know, knowing that there are services out there and, um, and knowing that there has been stigma around mental health. So a lot of what I do in my area is try to support people in understanding that um, there is stigma, but there's stigma to a lot of things. And the more people that try it and the more people who find relief from it um, helps to lessen that stigma. So I, I encourage people to, to be courageous enough to, to give it a try. The stigma is real. And depending on the kind of cultural backgrounds of our families or our society, you know, society, can be a number of things your church society your family society you could come we, we're, we all come from different places and with different uh, expectations but i remember when i was injured i was in the u.s army and i almost second time i was injured i almost lost my left arm from the shoulder down 
and I was really struggling with depression from the severity of the injury and some other things. And I went to my supervisor to share with with them the struggle that I was having with my mental health. And the, the response was quick and it was terse. Uh, Sergeant Molina, if you talk about this again, we're going to jerk your security clearance. You will not have any more access to the, the kind of information we're working on. We're going to re remove you from your position of, um, of clearance and of service. I mean, it was just so, mm. and so it, the message was very clear. I was not to mention it again. I was not to talk about it again. I was just to, you know, push it back down to some other place and fulfill my military duties and my military obligations. And you know what, Nassim, that's exactly what I did mm -hmm. until it resurfaced again. A time later when I was no longer under that kind of pressure and so I think with the work that you do the therapists do at CCC for our community those stigmas are real and what would what would be some of the things you might say to the listeners or viewers about how to maybe cope with some of those stigmas or confront some of those stigmas Um, hmm. Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, some of it is understanding the therapeutic process and that um, the therapist that you're meeting with maintains complete confidentiality um, unless there's a case in which we feel like there will be harm to, to a human being. And even then it has to be, um, it has to be to the point where where there's true concern. So in any case, just knowing that 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 your you know what you share is up to you. You don't have to go in and tell everyone your life story. Um, it, you know it's building a relationship. And so um, at the Center for Community Counseling and most mental health agencies uh, recognize the importance of building that relationship. And so um, you know on on that side feeling some comfort hopefully in going in and knowing that you're in control of this um, on the other side you know it is it is difficult to reach out um, there's no group that this comes particularly easy although um, the younger generation seems to be one that is growing up with the concept of mental health and counseling um, it's in so many movies now that it's it's um, maybe more even more trendy to to have a counselor, but but it's not um, it's not easy for any for any group. And so, I think recognizing that and and finding ways to um, to understand that there are difficult decisions we have to make in making any of our medical decisions. And so, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to get my children to go in and, and get their vaccines. It was hard for me to go back and get my second one, knowing what, what fate was uh, possibly waiting for me, but knowing that the, um, the, in the long run, it was going to be worth it. Right. So it may be a really sore arm or it may be having some, um, side effects for two or three days, but, is that worth it to me to know that I'm keeping myself and my community safe? And so um, in the same way, it's mental health, right? It's that first month is going to be really difficult as you start to experience um, being in a very intimate situation with another human being. Um, but as, as it develops and as you start to feel some relief from your symptoms um, and as you start to understand how... Um, the events in your life have affected who you are today. 
then I, I think it, most people find that it's worth it. Um, I also, being in a leadership position, get to see the the uh, comments that people leave for us once they're exiting services. And um, generally speaking, the majority, the vast majority are so thankful that they took that first step. And so I, I wish that for, for, you know, all of your listeners, I wish that for um, our society to have that mental health and that mental well-being. Yeah, I agree with you. And I agree that it's important that um, we do a better job as individuals about destigmatizing those that need support in some way. And those that need support, it doesn't mean that they're weak. It doesn't mean that they're, a lot of people like to throw around the term snowflake, really degrading, demeaning. Mm -hmm. As a society, we've gotten so good at that now, harming one another more and more with our words, not realizing the severity of the impact. So much so, I don't have a lot of things to talk about, but this is just fresh to me right now as I say this. We become so adept at harming one another that we have children committing suicide at rapid rates that are seven, eight, nine, ten years old because the severity of brutality in our verbal expressions one to another. And we can help one another do better and be better by controlling ourselves and doing the hard work of curtailing those kind of responses. Would you agree? Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's true for both genders, but particularly... Um, males and particularly males who are grown who are raised in um in families or societies that really cling to gender norms and gender stereotypes um you're not allowed to have feelings right men are supposed to either be okay or angry and so um so it does create this very difficult environment in which particularly for males to reach out for support um and and i think we see the the complications that that creates in the violence that we see. Whereas if people could could acknowledge that they're grieving, can acknowledge that their feelings are hurt, can acknowledge that um, that someone was not nice to them, right? And so, and not just not nice, that's that sugar coating it. Like um, people are experiencing severe amounts of trauma um, from other human beings. And until we start to acknowledge that, then um, this idea of justice for people who have been killed, um, particularly in the by police brutality, um, it just can't take place, right? And so um, it's it's going to take a systemic sort of change in which we value all human beings and we value that they all intrinsically have this need to be happy. And so um, I think in mental health, um, our goal is to do our part in helping people reach that. We know we hold, you know, one key to a much long, a much bigger systemic change, financial and um, legal and, and status and all of this. But one piece of that, that the individual can start to have some control over, I think, is their mental wellness. And so, um, you know, I, I hope that as a society that we try, that we learn that this is important, not only for our, our female um, citizens, but or residents, but also for our male neighbors who, um, who unfortunately are often the victims of crime and often the, and most often the perpetrators of crime. 
And if we want to start to address that, then we need to allow people to feel their feelings and work through their trauma. Now, <clears throat> you're doing a great work with your life. I mean, you're an educated, intelligent woman. Uh, with the dichotomy of your degrees is compelling. Mm-hmm. What was, was why this line of work for CCC for you? Well, um, as you can see, I turned on my camera last minute. And so I've got my kids stuff here and uh, my life stuff back there. And so I think this is a great visual. Um, had I had a, another extra minute, I would have fixed that up a little. But I think this is a great visual of what my life is. You know, I, I um, have my, um, sorry, my degrees from the University of New Mexico in uh, child in psychology and family studies for my undergrad and so i really always had this desire to be with people to support people i actually thought i was going to be a teacher um, and so moving on to my master's degree um, i had since then some more world experience and really found that i i really valued leadership and i really valued organizations and so um, living in, in countries outside of the United States, I really felt like grassroots movements um, were what, what changed society, what bettered people's lives more quickly. It's much harder to do, do something for 6 million people than it is for the 60 neighbors living in your area, right? Like how can we organize and how can we um, come together in a unified vision? So all of that led me to discovering that there is a program that incorporates the two. So my two degrees um, overlapped in, in some of their training because uh, social work, unlike some of the mental, other mental health agencies, really has this uh, community aspect and leadership aspect to it. And so both of my degrees um, are in nonprofit management. So social work with the idea of nonprofit management and then also the business degree with uh, the nonprofit management. And so, you know, kind of looking at my room, um, being with my children, being with family, being with people, it's very important to me. Um, and so is organization. And so is finding efficient ways to do things. And so, um, yeah, so that's what, what brought me to those two degrees and what brought me to really, I can still remember the angst I had over applying to the Center for Community Counseling, um, really wanting this position because I felt like it met all of my needs. Um, I'm overseeing the clinical program. So to me, that that fulfills that need. Um, it also, I believe as a, as a person in leadership, I should know what the people I'm supervising are doing right so that I, I make decisions that make sense and so it didn't make sense to me to work in a leadership position in areas that I don't have experience and so food distribution or you know there are all these other great agencies that are out there um, so the center of community counseling really combined those two and having a leadership role um, with the mental health but also the model of mental health that I believe in like I said I believe in people um, not needing to have a diagnosis when they come in. Uh, if you want one, I'm happy to give you one. We can do that as well. Uh, but, but I want you to want it. I want it to make sense to you because it's not about fulfilling a need for an insurance company or the medical model. I want this to be the therapy that makes sense to um, people coming in. And so I just really loved um, that the Center for Community Counseling takes mental health back to its roots 
Um, and so all of those pieces coming together and the fact that um, I felt like I could still manage manage the center and manage life at home and still um, be there for my kids, I think was what just really drew me to, to this position. And I've been so, um, I feel so blessed every day to get up and go to work um, with such amazing therapists and coworkers. Now you said uh, you lived outside of the US? I did, I've, I've lived in Israel and Tanzania. Tell us a little bit about those two experiences, why and uh, what you did there. Um, well, in Tanzania, I worked at a um, Baha'i inspired school. And so um, the schools there run on a slightly different system. It's a more European system. So this would have been what we consider high school to junior college level. Um, it was a boarding school and an amazing experience. And I taught what was called their moral education, um, which basically just talked about how to for kids that were coming out of the villages and had very little contact with the Western world, how to understand their values and maintain their values when faced with uh, globalization, which we didn't see in a negative way, but we just wanted to make sure that kids were making decisions based on their values rather than the values that were coming in from the United States, particularly, but the Western world. Um, so that's what I did there. I also taught computers, which um, our IT person I'm sure would find humorous, but <laughs> that's, that's where it was uh, 10 years ago. Keyboarding was enough, especially in Eastern Africa, but it was an amazing experience. Um, someplace I hope to return to. It's, um, yeah, again, that, that idea of grassroots change, there was um, something that you can, you can easily experience um, in community. How big was that school? Um, I think we had about 300 students. And how did you find out about that? Um, <laughs> let me think of all the ways. Um, I was actually in Israel when I found out about it and I found out about it through a network of um, people, one being a friend from Kenya. Um, and so, yeah, visiting and um, being part of, just felt like a community that I was very, I felt very at home with. Um, and so, yeah, and so I was in Israel um, serving as a, as a security guard of all things, so. The uh, security forces? The security guard, not with, not with the Israeli, um, the Baha'i World Center is located in Haifa, Israel. And so um, there are volunteer teenagers, well, there are volunteers of all ages, particularly teenagers um, in some of the helping professions. And so, um, I did see one of the questions you might potentially ask was what one thing that no one knows about me is I actually have, um, a, well, I don't know if I currently do, I'm not quite in the shape I was, but I was a black belt in uh, martial arts for a long time. And so um, I was one of the first female um, officers that they had there uh, as a security guard. So yeah, it was an interesting experience, <laughs> um, but that's, that's kind of what led me to, to the various stages. So why did you want to be in the secure a security guard there? You know, it was a need that they had, um, and I thought it would be fun. So I was I was college age. It seemed like a good thing to do at that time. <laughs> What'd you learn about yourself in that position? I could be very bossy, which then led me from my psychology degree to the business degree. So it all fit. <laughs> and you got your black belt as a security officer learning there. 
No, no, I had that um, in New Mexico. Um, I, yes, I was, uh, it was Shotokan Karate and I did it for six years or so. That's a pretty tough Shotokan. <laughs> That's tough. It's, it, it is. Uh, yeah, it was a very um, traditional style. Oh yeah, so. I'm impressed. <laughs> you're 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 one of the very few people that I know that have a black, black belt in Shotokan, and I, I know that it's a very uh, demanding discipline. So mm -hmm. I you. thank you. So, what was it like for you being young, going off to Israel? Um, you know, for me again, it was the Baha'i World Center, which is um, my religious background, and so it was. It was wonderful in that way. Um, I think it's a testament, even even back then. This is now. I was there in two thousand. No, yeah, somewhere around there. Um, but I think it's a testament to social media. And so, you know, I, I remember being there for a year. I came back to go on vacation. Um, it was during the war, the the initial war with Iraq um, that that had happened, and so. You know, I remember leaving the leaving from Tel Aviv, arriving in um, Frankfurt on my way home, and seeing on the news, of course, in a language I couldn't understand, all this chaos going on in Israel. And I thought, I've just been gone six hours. <laughs> you know, how did all this happen? And um, it took me a while, of course, because of the language barrier, to try to figure out what was happening. But I knew that there were these demonstrations and there were always these problems in small parts of Israel and Israel in itself is an incredibly small country. You can drive from one end to the other in a day. Um, and so I, I, I remember thinking, you know, we should we should be very careful of what we see in the media because um, the story was real. I'm not saying that it was in no, any way not real. But it wasn't the whole story of Israel. Israel is incredibly um, aware of their situation. Um, you know, the community of Haifa has uh, Muslims, it has Jews, it has um, Druids, it has Baha'is, it has uh, Christians, all living in incredibly um, tight quarters and living peacefully together. It's not perfect. Uh, but when no community is, but they, but there is a very um, concerted effort to make this work there. And so, um, so living in Israel was wonderful. It was hot. It was, you know, it took us out of our Western ability to just have things at a moment's notice. Um, we lived with people, I lived with people from all over the world because um, it's the belief that if if I truly believe in unity, that I should I should start in my own home. Um, so it was a it was a wonderful experience, and I'm glad to have had it. I think it gives me a greater appreciation for uh, people's lives. I lived in Germany for three years when I, when I was active duty U.S. Army, and it's a lot like that there. People from all over the world living peacefully together. And I still struggle sometimes when I think about why can't we find the ability to do that here in the U.S. I mean, we have a lot of people here, mind you, but we're still as full of, in my humble opinion, full of a lot of unnecessary conflict uh, because we don't want to let others just peaceably abide. 
And so I, I still struggle with that concept or that struggle here in this nation. Um, anyway, that being said, what an amazing opportunity for a young lady to go to be able to have those experiences and to learn and grow and to develop in your leadership, in your ability, in your understanding of helping people live together peacefully. You mentioned your Baha'i faith. How important, regardless of what one's faith system is, how important is it in the realm of healing and counseling to practice that faith? You know, that I think that varies for um, each individual. For me personally, it would be extremely important. Um, I think it's what's gotten me through a lot of challenges. And I think it's true for many people who have a strong faith base. I also recognize that there's a lot of trauma um, due to people's growing up in um, with certain dogmas and doctrines um, that can stem from religion. And so I think for some people, it's understanding that trauma um, and then deciding whether or not they want a faith base. Um, it appears that having some belief in something greater than yourself can be incredibly heal healing. So many of us are um, familiar with the AA uh, Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step um, program, which does recognize a higher power, um, something beyond ourselves. And I think that that can give hope to people. I think it can give, um, when not done in a way that's traumatizing, I think it can give a feeling of um, accountability to ourselves, to a greater power, and to our community. You know, I, I think most religions, and I think most people have to agree, that the, um, the head of each religion, whether it be Muhammad or Baha'u'llah or Christ or Moses or, you know, many of the others, Zoroaster, Buddha, Krishna, um, that they all came with the same message of peace. And it is what, through, again, my belief being trauma and um, an ego, that we have um, split these off into fractions that fight each other and, and can create great trauma for people. Um, but I would like to see people be able to um, at least experience um, the openness of a religion that, um, or a faith base that would be supportive to them. Now, was there a significant life event that spoke to your heart to work in this area of healing? Um, yeah, and I just think as a leadership position, you know, always thinking about what that message is like. Um, I do want to say that in the mental health world, um, you know, my values should not be what drives anyone's mental health. And so those are definitely personal values that I hold, um, but not nothing that would be um, particularly a, a focus for anyone who came to the Center for Community Counseling. And so I just wanted to clarify that, that if someone's uncomfortable with that, that, that that's not a part of counseling necessarily, but it can be if you want it to be. Um, as far as life events, um, I think, like I said, I think we all come in with our own trauma. Um, I think that particularly in mental health, people come in with their own trauma um, and mental health is a way to understand that. 
And so um, hopefully if you have a therapist, they've gone through their own work as well. So for me, a life event that brings us to it. Um, I don't know if there is one in particular. I, I was raised by parents who were immigrants from Iran. Um, and so learning to assimilate for myself, learning what that meant, um, learning my own identity, I think in that um, has led me to, to value that for other people. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know if there, I always had a love for working with children. And so most of my career has actually been in mental health counseling of children. Um, and so this is uh, a little bit of a different venture, but I have found that um, children and adults are not that, that dissimilar, right? We all still need acceptance and love and to feel that we are a valuable member of our community. And so, um, so anyways, I started off working with children and I just, I always had a draw to that area. Um, but my father was um, a businessman and I grew up um, assessing motels and um, communities in that way. And so, and a lot of math and science in my background. So I think the, the, the business part came naturally to me as well. That's something that was just kind of ingrained into my DNA from early on. Um, and so I think this, again, finding that degree was a kind of a melting pot of my two, two sides. Tell us a little bit for the sake of this discussion of women in leadership. What was it like for you? Your parents were immigrants that were from Iran. What was that process of becoming an American, if you will? What was it like for your parents to watch you in that process? How, is your, how did your family successfully navigate uh, this new lifestyle, if you will? Hmm. Well, I think uh, the verdict is out on successful, but we'll keep looking at that. Uh, you know, for me, again, our, our religion was, I think, the most driving point. And so um, breaking away from the more traditional Iranian perspective of gender roles uh, was never easy, but I think it, it was um, escalated by our, our religious beliefs that women and men are created equal. And so I think some of that, the Western um, beliefs were closer to our own religious beliefs. So that helped that process. We always had a very wonderful and very open and welcoming Baha'i community, no matter where we moved. So I think that helped. Um, and again, these are mitigating factors in mental health, right? Having a supportive, um, support system is we know a way that um, children, even in times of trauma can um, have create greater resiliency. And so I think having those in my life um, really supported me through some, some times that were more difficult. You know, the assimilation is definitely not easy. And so um, choices of clothing, you know, that's always a concern for teenagers and their parents, um, even more so if your parents come from a very conservative country. So, um, yeah, so a lot of that was, was again, having that resiliency built in, in a supportive support system. Um, and I think recognizing my own privilege that my parents were able to come, um, had the support of extended families and were able to 
um, do well financially or do do well enough financially um, that gave us a lot of privilege uh, that many immigrants, particularly today, are not able to access quite as easily. Um, so I think, yeah, a sense of privilege, a sense of community um, really supported that process. But I don't think I don't think growing up is easy um, for any child, particularly those um, who are facing those additional barriers. Appreciate you being willing to answer that, Nassim, because you know it's important. We, I really have come to really have a strong negative connotation of the word assimilate and um, forced assimilation, cultural assimilation. Uh, sometimes we do a really good job of destroying others in that process and mm -hmm. I, I really struggle with that and I really just wanted to genuinely and sincerely hear what it was like for you and for your family and uh, um, so thank you for sharing that I have a lot of powerful emotions surfacing from that so I'm going to move on to another question uh, what are some of the things that surprised you as you began your career Um, that's a good question. So again, my, my career is twofold in, you know, I have the business side and, um, I think what surprised me most is the generosity of individual donors. And so we still do a, a dance of excitement with every check we get, <laughs> uh, whether it be, you know, $25 or $2,500, um, but it just amazes me that the people value mental health so much and value what we do so much that they just send us these checks um, and expect so little recognition in the in in return. And so, um, from from a business side, that that just blows me away every every time, especially with our fall appeal and our spring appeal. We're in the midst of our spring appeal and um, just the the generosity of donors, those who have, again, some privilege and are willing to sacrifice that for others. Um, you know, the, the number of counseling sessions that really buys, even though our therapists are volunteers, there's still a lot that kind of happens in the background. Boxes of tissues still need to be bought. And, um, you know, as we've had to move to being online um, to maintain the safety of our volunteers and our clients who are obviously um, uninsured for a lot of them. Um, you know, having to just have the technology for you and I to sit here, it just takes, it takes financial um, resources. And so I'm just blown away by the generosity. Um, as far as social work goes, you know, when you talk about surprises, it, they vary through the years. And so first getting started and, and unfortunately seeing what the medical model has done to a field that's there as a supporting position, um, I think has been, has been, there's a great amount of accountability. So I'm not putting it down. I appreciate what the, the agencies would do and the hard work therapists do, but the lack of understanding of the the role of a therapist or the role of a community outreach specialist who's driving from home to home, trying to engage kids, making sure there's no abuse and neglect happening and um, you know, working through the trauma of, of generations of families, 
to go home and have to document every 15 minutes of work that they did uh, to bill for Medicaid and just to, to get a livable wage um, is just sad to me that, that we so undervalue the work that they do at the community level. Um, more particularly, I think the, um, you know, with Black Lives Matter and with these movements, I think it's easy to get lost even amongst therapists in, um, in the rhetoric and understanding that we all are doing the best that we can in any given situation and that knowledge and support of each other and understanding our own grief and trauma around it, um, I think will, in my opinion, will, um, will just support the process and help us reach our goal of each individual being a valued member of our community um, quicker than in any way creating any dissension or disunity. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's been, um, we're all having to learn really quick in ways I think we knew we needed to and didn't want to. Mm. And now it's been thrust upon us by forces greater than ourselves that we really have to learn some new ways of communicating and not just ways of communicating, but come back to a place of responsible communication for the things that we've been wanting to avoid and discard and disregard for significant, significant amount of time. You know, I, for the sake of this discussion, people say, well, our political correctness is out of control. We shouldn't have to be so politically correct. Well, I can tell you, now my voice is amping up a little bit, I can tell you what it's like growing up in an era of time in this country where there was no political correctness. And people could say the most vicious things to you they felt like saying and get away with it because there was no guidelines for responsible communication. And it seems like now we're kicking against this side, this responsible, this idea of responsible communication because we want to go back to just destroying people with our mouths. And it's causing, and I'm, I, I'm upset because it's causing a lot of this distress. And for those of us who experienced that generationally in this country already, now we're hearing that again, there's a lot of trauma that comes up around that. And people say, oh, it's just your imagination. That's not real. That was a long time ago. You're blowing it out of proportion. I hear that so much. But that's because they've never been on the other side of it. You know, again, I think that that grief and that trauma that you're talking about is the root cause of what you're talking about. So the good thing is your therapist should never and will never um, use those words, right? And so we do know that, no, we don't just get over things. We need support in doing that. And whether that's built in resilience or whether that's um, done as an adult in, in a therapeutic set setting. And so, you know, I think there's grief on both sides. There's grief in in feeling a loss of country. There's a, a grief in um, feeling that things are changing and we have no control over it and we're being left behind. There's a grief in the, um, in the trauma that we've experienced um, being different than what's considered an American, right? Even though we know from the beginning that America has never been what we, what we consider, what many consider a true American. And so, um, you know, growing up in New Mexico, um, 
the the Hispanic, which is what the population then refers to themselves as, they've been there since um, before there was an, an idea of an America, right? And so recognizing that we have such a diverse history and that there is so much trauma and grief um, in this in this country, recognizing that the Native Americans who the land is given and split up and taken and you know all of that and that we we are the recipients of that i'm sitting in a home that you know is not is not a land that was originally my ancestors land and so i think again if we work through some of this trauma then then we don't need political correctness because we would have a respect for another human being mm -hmm. as a human being but until that day then we have these safety nets right until your child learns to do what they need to do and follow the rules, we have rules for them so that they can they can start to internalize that. Um, and until our country starts to internalize this respect for one another and this way to discuss um, race and, and culture and language, um, then we need to have rules around it. And then once we mature as, an, as a community, then we can forget the rules because we will do it out of not just tolerance, but, but truly acceptance of one another and hopefully even appreciation of one another. Yes, I agree, thank you. Now, as you began your work, as you've been doing your work now for some time, Nassim, what are some of the more challenging issues that you face as a therapist or the therapist face? Because those are important too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, tr the difficulty often is that therapy is not easy. You know, I talk about once once you start to see the relief, but it, but it's hard. You don't see the relief right away. <laughs> you know, we're not we're not the type of agency that you go in and and within a month your kid is cured or you're cured. Um, it's a really long, difficult process. And so I think for many therapists and um, myself as a supervisor, kind of seeing this as a bigger picture, is feeling the loss for the client who become so overwhelmed that they leave treatment early or they get frustrated by the process and they leave treatment early because we're left feeling, seeing where it could have gone, um, seeing that we're in the midst of the, of the trauma and knowing that if someone were to leave at that point that the symptoms will not get better but possibly even get worse, right? The nightmares do get worse if we're like now consciously reliving that trauma. And so um, you know, I, I encourage anyone who's willing to try it to, to work with the therapist in discharging appropriately because um, it, is, it is a long-term medical treatment um, and, and we don't take it lightly. So, so I think that's been the most frustrating. And of course, again, um, you know, the, the fact that we, can't, that we can't pay our volunteers for the work, wonderful work that they do because I do really value um, the time and effort that the that they put in. Yeah, that that would be hard. I'd like to say that when I was in the U.S. Army and I was in Germany, I was probably 22 at that time, and I came up positive on a urinalysis for drugs, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me, Nassim. The best thing that ever happened to me. Because the first, that was the first time in my life when I was able to go into counseling, and I was able to share my share my pain, talk about my struggle, talk about all that those things I had buried deep down inside of me, and I remember 
the the lady, she was a southern southern lady out of Georgia. She was a DOD Department of Defense contractor, and she was beautiful, beautiful African American woman with a big old gap on her tooth, and so lovely. And I and and she said, she said, Mark, you don't have a drug problem, honey. You have an emotional problem. But I'm telling you, Nassim, when she said that. That black cloud that I was aware of that had been hanging over my head since I was 18, in that moment of time, in her words, it dissipated. And all of a sudden, I, I, mean, I just started crying and I said to her, so you mean I, I'm really not bad? That's what I said to her. She said, you might have done some bad things in your pain, but you have pain. It's that emotional pain we got to deal with. When we deal with your emotional pain, all this other stuff goes away. And she was 100% absolutely correct. And it was a long-term process. Yeah, but I can tell you, after that moment in time, I didn't need any of those things anymore. Because it was the, the, the internalized trauma that I never knew how to talk about or deal with. And quite frankly, nobody wanted to hear anyway. Right? I'm so glad you had that positive experience. Sounds like she was an amazing counselor. Um, and absolutely, you know, you felt the relief of it. And so having someone validate and understand your trauma and to understand, right, that none of us are intrinsically bad. We don't come into this world saying, I'm going to murder someone or I'm going to hurt someone or I'm going to become a drug dealer or I'm going to abuse my children. We are all doing the best we can with the resources we have. And so you know, my goal is how can I increase the resources that, that each person has and the understanding that each person has. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think that's a great example of, I'm so glad you had that moment and you got to know that, that your parents' death and, and all the trauma around that and anything else that happened is making it hard to stay in reality, right? And so we turn to fighting or we turn to drugs and alcohol or we turn to different things to to start to alleviate that but if we can if we can take the moment take the courage to face those realities and um hopefully with the support of another person and understand that there are parts of us that are really hurting um then maybe we can overcome that and then maybe we don't need to feel so angry when someone's wearing a mask or not wearing a mask you know we can we can let that moment go and so um, I think that we, we see this, I think that it's becoming very divisive, but I, but I think that there can be, sometimes it takes us being an incredible crisis before we're able to reach out for help. So I'm hoping that the end result will be that we can find a better way forward for all of us. What are some of the things that you do to train and help prepare your interns for the work that lies ahead? You know, again, being in agencies where I did see um, training and um, supervision being not as valued as I felt they should be, that is a really important part in what I do. Um, so we provide our interns in particular um, about five hours of training and supervision a week. And so that's, that's substantial. Um, and I think that should also talk to your, to your listeners that if you do have an intern um, it doesn't mean that you don't have experience behind that intern because there, although your information stays confidential, we are, we're looking for what are the, um, 
the themes, just like if you were to go into a hospital, a learning, a teaching hospital and have an internist um, do your work on you, there is someone looking over their shoulder and making sure that you're being treated in the best way possible. And oftentimes it is someone who has even more experience than someone you might find in the general public. And so we have, like I said, we've got um, supervisors sometimes from the U of O um, psycholo psychology departments looking over people's shoulders. We have therapists who have been in this field for a long time, have so much knowledge. I learn from them every time we have these supervisions. Um, we have a partnership growing with Pacific University who's had a social work program um, going on for a few years. And we've got an amazing trainer coming out of that, um, that program to, to even strengthen our, our training and supervision aspect more. Um, since we take supervision really seriously, um, we wanna make sure that our clients are getting the service that they that they deserve um, if they're being vulnerable with their with their trauma and their mental health with us. Um, so we take so there is that part. There's supervision. There's training. Um, you know, all all of our therapists are going through their master's program or have completed a master's level program, and so um, you know, we even though we're not as regulated as an insurance, an agency who builds insurance, uh, we still maintain those really high standards um, and making sure we adhere to the laws of the, the various uh, licensing boards. And so, um, you know, we just, we do our best. And I think that, again, we're very fortunate in that we're very client driven and we're um, therapist driven. And so, we work collaboratively to make sure that we're meeting the needs, not only of our volunteers and our interns, but through them, our clients. How are you managing you, your staff, your interns, your other therapists, managing to stay current with all of the new mental health demands and diagnoses? You know, this is not a field that, um, takes that lightly. And so every year, all of our therapists, licensed therapists are um, required by their state licensing boards to do a number of uh, continuing education credits. Like I said, we take it seriously internally. And so we are continuously looking at ways, even through COVID, of making sure that we present to our therapists um, not, no, not necessarily the newest trends. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't go that direction. Um, but those that have been tested to be tried and true, that respect the um, the whole person and not just wanting to change behaviors. And so, although we're not, um, we're not an agency that also doesn't worry about behaviors. If someone wants to come in and and change a specific behavior, we're definitely posed poised to do that. But um, as far as trainings go, we try to look at it as, you know, if, if we were unhampered by um, the number of sessions someone could have, the number of times they could see a therapist and the number of times that an insurance company will pay for, you know, what would we do? What would we do if it was us in that chair? What would we want? And so, um, you know, we just really try to stay up to date on that training. So we have nearly weekly um, training on the most by some of the most respected um, therapists of our times. That's really good. That's very encouraging to know that. Now, what are some of the things that you do to take care of yourself in this line of work? 
You know, I'm so blessed uh, right now, as I said, I'm working from home. So I get to, um, to really balance that, that life work balance. Um, luckily, we've been able to make it through this interview without the stampede of children going back and forth outside my door. But uh, yeah, I just feel very blessed in this time um, as difficult as COVID has been that I get to uh, experience my children a little bit more. So when things are stressful, I get to go out and read a book or eat with lunch with my kids and then come back and tackle whatever it is with a new set of um, eyes and patience. And likewise, when things get difficult out there, I can close the door <laughs> and come out in here. So um, yeah, I just think that balance, I've got an amazing team that I work with. We're incredibly small, but the most supportive executive director anyone could ever ask for and the most creative. I mean, just the way she's gotten us through COVID um, has been really inspiring. We have an office manager who makes sure that I cross, cross my T's and dot my I's. Um, see, I was gonna say I'm backwards. I needed, I needed Leslie here to make sure I, I keep my, my um, details going. And, um, and we've got a new hire that um, is an intern graduating and has two of them who are um, technologically keeping me on my toes and um, helping to support this. So I feel incredibly blessed um, that, you know, it's just kind of coming together with my skills, my strengths. And then when I, where I lack those, I've got an amazing team behind me. And in this line of work you've been doing now for some time, what are some of the leadership insights you've received? Um, I think I found that balance is the most important thing. And so, um, you know, wanting input from our volunteers, wanting input for the interns, um, but knowing that if I wait to have complete agreement on everything, um, that it just, it won't, the agency won't run very efficiently. And so what I find is knowing that I don't know everything. And so I need to consult with Again, this amazing group of therapists that I work with and through those consultations, getting as much feedback as I can, keeping those in mind, and then knowing that I, I have a kind of a bigger picture oftentimes. And so how can I incorporate that new learning into the picture that I already have? And then through that consultation, making a decision, um, but also being open to feedback. So implementing something and then getting the feedback of hopefully that was wonderful, thank you so much. But if not, um, you know, what did I miss? And so always trying to improve, I, I find evaluation and assessments when done correctly to be incredibly helpful. And so that's something that I'm, I'm constantly working on, um, trying to get feedback from, from others, from our clients. Um, and so just that, that feedback loop, I guess, is very important, you know, consulting, making a decision, going with it, but also being ready to, to have to fix it or, to, or uh, change it a little bit. So I'd say that's finding that balance um, has been really helpful of how much to help do I need and then where do I need to just finally make that decision. And what would you say to those that are have an interest in becoming professionals in the realm of mental health? Um, well, a couple of things. One is know the field, you know, don't get in there just because they're offering a leadership position. Um, know mental health, know what goes into it, know the tireless work that this puts on clinicians. 
you know, the nights that they think stay up thinking about their client and worrying about their client. Um, and so that you can make policies and you can make procedures that make sense to the people doing the work um, and, and do your own work so that you know that where your, your blind spots are and your triggers are. Um, but I also think, you know, it's a wonderful field to get into. I think we do need people who understand um, and, and really value mental health and value um, the importance of it and also the time it can take and being ready to lobby for that. Um, and I, yeah, I would encourage anyone to get in and, and to bring the leadership side with them if that's already a skill that they have. What would you like to say to the listeners, those in our community, how can they support the work of the Center for Community Counseling? Um, you know, there's so many ways. If you've got the financial resources to become one of our donors, absolutely reach out to us. We are um, help you, able to help you through that, whether it's in-kind donations, whether it's financial, whether it's your time and services, um, if you're a licensed individual. So, you know, there, there are definitely ways in which anyone can, can support us, whether it be, again, financially or just of your time. Um, and, you know, if you're not able to do that, just possibly being an ambassador for us and just letting the community know, letting those who could be potential donors know um, if you've got a business and you've got some service that you can offer. Uh, you know, our groups always need food and our um, kids always need bubbles. And so there, there are lots of different ways that we can make this work. Um, if you're a licensed individual and you want to get a hold of us and be part of our team, um, we're always looking for new therapists as well and, and clients, knowing that coming in, working through your grief, working through whatever it is for you, um, will have a ripple effect in our community. And so I think the goal of mental health is always to not be needed anymore. And so if we can start with you, that would be a, a great place to start. Very good. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us today Molina Leadership Solutions ongoing series, Women in Leadership, Nassim May. She is a clinical program manager for the Center for Community Counseling located here in Eugene, Oregon, Lane County. Uh, now they help thousands of people every year, thousands who need mental health support, who can't uh, afford private practice consultations. They're a great organization. I'm on their board of directors. I joined the board of directors because I know what it is to have need of mental health services and not know that I needed that help, not know how to get that help, not know uh, how to find the necessary recovery from that type of support. And in this pandemic and in this time of great pain that we're all facing, we need to know there's an organization like Center for Community Counseling and that we have professionals like Nassim May available to us to help us and to help us navigate and to overcome. I want to thank our sponsor today, Molina Law Group, a local immigration practice here in Springfield, Oregon. They'll be opening their Beaverton offices in June 2021. If you are in love with someone overseas, you will need a fiancé visa to go see them or have them come see you. Molina Law Group can help you do that. Call them 541-653-8899. You can find the Molina Law Group on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Nassim, thank you so much. What a great joy to speak with you today. 
I'm glad your children were cooperating. <laughs> if they're not in school, I don't know. Uh, but I love, uh, I love seeing their artwork on the wall and the reality that we have this other dimension to our lives. Great, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, have a very good day. You too. Bye-bye.